want you to read something with me in verse 1 of chapter 13 of the book of Genesis. It says this, Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. And Abraham, or Abram, was very rich. Now that's a really interesting word there. Stop right there. How do I know that they're contrasting? That Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making a contrast here. Because that word in the Hebrew is heavy. What they're saying there is he was weighed down. He had a lot of stuff. He got really rich. And when I go back to chapter 12, in verse 10, okay? Now there was a famine, look at this, 10, or excuse me, 12 verse 10, speaking of the life of Abraham, remember this, Abram was asked to leave his home in the Ur of the Chaldees. Can you put that up, Gabe, please? He was uh, asked to leave his house in the Ur of the Chaldees, and he went hundreds and hundreds of miles to Haran. He went up there. And then he went from Haran to the land of Canaan. And uh, the Lord told him several things. I want you to go. I want you're, I'm going to give you a land. So he did, does sort of. He doesn't go straight to Canaan. He goes to Haran. And when he gets there, the Lord makes more promises to him or reiterates the promise that I want you to get out of your country. You're going to go to a land that I'm going to show you. By the way, he was supposed to get away from his family or leave his family behind. He didn't do that. Remember? And uh, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, in his grace and mercy, who knows why, chose Abram. And he took him, you know, and he asked him to go to a land that he would show him, in the land of Canaan. He didn't go there. He went to Haran. He took his family. He wasn't supposed to. And so how do I know this is a compare and contrast? Because when we get to verse 10, there was a famine in the land of chapter 12, and Abram went down to Egypt. And remember, this is where it gets squirrely. He's not living by faith now. He's living by sight. And if you know anything about the Christian life, you would know this. That we are called to fix our eyes, Paul said, not on what is seen. Folks, if you're focused on the things that are seen, and that's all the way you're living, you're just, boom, I, the material stuff, the circumstances of life, I see how it's working out, and I'm ticked about it, I don't like it. Well, you're not doing what Paul said. I'm not doing what Paul says because Paul says in 2 Corinthians, don't fix your eyes on things that aren't seen, but on what are seen, but on what are unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And you know this because we talked about these two chapters are about faith. Because the Bible says in the New Testament in three places, the Old Testament one place, that the just shall live by faith. And that turned uh, Martin Luther's whole world around. That was the verse. He was reading through Romans 1. Again, he'd read it forever, and the Lord used it by the Holy Spirit to do a reformation, start a reformation, start the reformation. That the just shall live by faith. Now, this is cool. Here's why it's cool. 
Because if you're a born-again, spirit-filled Christian, you've been justified. You're just. The Lord has taken his heavenly gavel, and when it came to you to stand before him, in a sense, you're going to stand before him again, but you, you get what I'm saying. He says this, bang, not guilty. You say, wait a minute, why am I not guilty? He says, because you have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who took what was coming for you. So you're just, you've been justified. And that is a reason to jump up and down in the seats. You're justified. And the Bible says that the just, so that what I'm trying to get at is, Abram is to live by faith as he looked forward to the coming Messiah. You're justified if you look backward in a sense, although he's alive. You know that question about, I've tried all the religions. That's the easiest thing to answer in the history of the world. I love it when they ask that stuff. I've examined all the religions. Oh, really? Where's your leader of your religion? Well, he died. And you're like, are you kidding me? The one who told you who he was, and there was only one way, and you believe in the religion and in Jesus, and you recognize that he's alive and the rest are dead. Listen, I come from the sports world. That, to me, seems like a win, like a total domination. One's alive, the rest are dead. He defeated death just like he said he would. And every other one is dead. It doesn't make sense to me. Of course it does because I read the Bible and I see that they've been blinded to the truth. And praise the Lord that we have the ability to go to him and pray for them and share the gospel. That's my rabbit trail. But we, uh, we're talking about looking forward to the coming Messiah. And you're going to see that in chapter 14 when the king of Melchizedek comes and has fellowship with Abram. And he brings the bread and the wine. <laughs> anyway, we'll get there in a minute. But the just shall live by faith. But we're contrasting then here, or the Holy Spirit by Moses is contrasting faith. What is it to live by the things that are not seen and what is it to live by the things that are seen? And what's interesting about it is you read about Abram going down into Egypt, which, by the way, prefigures what the whole nation of Israel is going to do later on here in the Old Testament. They're going to go into Egypt and come out, right? Oh, wait, okay, but watch. Look back in chapter 12. There's a famine and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. You're like, you know, when you're reading it, you're like, come on, you say it. I'm the pastor and I say it. What a dummy. Two seconds ago, he just told him he was going to give him the land, the land of Canaan. Why would you leave? And why did he leave? Because he stopped believing the promise or he forgot the promise, or he didn't, he didn't remember to remember the promise. Get what I'm saying? 
the circumstances. He was living by this instead of by faith. And all of a sudden, this man of faith, a man who is just, the just shall live by faith, starts getting really weird and wonky in his faith, right? And you go, come on, what are you doing? You tell Pharaoh she's your sister? What are you doing? I mean, that's how I sort of read it right there. And then I remember something. Uh, listen, listen to what uh, uh, Kent Hughes writes about this. It's the perfect way to describe it. It's this. Uh, oh, that's chapter 12. Sorry. Let me get there. He writes this. Abraham was like us. A paradoxical mixture of self-centered reliance and trust in God. You ever found yourself, you're just sailing along, trusting the Lord. Harps, you know, seem to be across your head. You're, or excuse me, you hear harps and you hear the halos are over your head and you just feel like, wow, everything's just sailing along. And then the next time you do something, you say something, you get in this situation, you go, what did I do? How did I get here? Yes, he's right. And so we, Abraham, like us, is a paradoxical mixture of self-centered reliance and trust in God. And the author Moses, somebody told me this today in Bible college, makes no attempt to gloss over Abram's failures. Isn't that wonderful how real and raw the Bible is? It doesn't sugarcoat things. Here you got the, the hero of all heroes in the Bible except Jesus, Abraham or Abram. And we see him doing things, you're like, what is he doing? But the author, Moses, makes no attempt to gloss over his failures. In fact, the stories first of Abram's failure in Egypt with Pharaoh and then his success in Canaan with Lot explore the contradictions within this man of faith. And by this contrast, Moses helps us to explore our own hearts. Isn't that so true? And so we come back to chapter 13, and we recognize now there's the word heavy in chapter 12, verse 10, where he starts to do some weird, distrustful things. And then we get to chapter 13, and he leads off with about how rich Abram got and how it's heavy. And so you have these like two pillars set beside each other to compare and contrast. He didn't live by faith. He lived uh, by the sight. And so then we come to chapter 13, and it says he goes up from Egypt. What happens, folks, just that little phrase, what happens when you find yourself in that place and you go, what did I do? Why did I say that to them? How could I have hurt them like that? Why was I so weak? and distrustful of the Lord's promises. And and I ended up here. And you know, one of the great things that you can do in cooperation with the Lord here is to just simply recognize it and understand it. Here's why. Because a lot of people, when they go down that path, me included, we just sort of try to wiggle our way, figure our way, manipulate our way out of that path to try to get back where we got off the path 
And I don't know about you, but when we do that, what happens is it gets worse and worse. We start digging our own hole. We start digging the path farther away from the Lord when we try to manipulate it ourselves. And here it says that Abram came up out of Egypt, the place that always represents sin in the Bible, and he goes up and he starts to go to the place where God had promised it to him. You see? He went outside the promise. He went outside the trust. He began to not trust what the Lord had said. But now he comes to his senses and says, what am I doing? And the first thing he does is he doesn't try to manipulate the situation. He says, I got to get back to the land of promise. And that's the same for you and I. We always are to live in the land of promise. Oh, we don't live over in Israel, the land of Canaan. We live in beautiful, sunny southwestern Pennsylvania with all the wonderful fall, winter, summer, spring seasons. And we love it. We live here, but we can live in the land of the promises. Do you and I stand on the promises of God or do we try to take things into our own hands and next thing we know, we find ourselves in Egypt? Well, if we do that, first thing is get back to the land of promise. Amen? And Abram recognized that. Praise the Lord that he did. And here we're seeing the contrast. First thing is, make sure you're in the land of promise. You yell out to me, how do you know the promises of God? You read them, you study them, you see them, you, you, you take them in, you, you praise God for them. You let the Lord bless you. Let him wash over you all the promises of God. I'm lonely. Nobody loves me. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I have nothing in this world. Nobody cares. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why doesn't God just give me a sign? He did. He died on the cross and rose again. We live in the land of promises. If you just go back to the cross, every single time it answers every question of humanity. Every single question. I don't feel like I matter. The Son of God died for you. What do you mean you don't matter? You matter. And on and on we go, right? It's We live in the land of promise. So he goes back. And he gets there and he has Lot with him. And instead of complaining about the problem, because we're going to see lots of snot-nosed, arrogant, young guy who wants to tell Abram what to do, and he wants to take all the possessions. And if you're a competitive person or a carnal person, I mean, even when I read this, it sort of flares up in me. What in the world? Who do you think you are, Lot, doing this to Abram? But he brings him because... That's his nephew, and Lot comes with him to the south. Now, when that means to the south, it doesn't mean that he went from Egypt south. It means he's coming up to the south. In fact, in some other translations, it says the Negev, which is southern Israel. It's the place that you think of when you think of Israel. It's dry and dusty and has all the red-looking stuff, and uh, it's down there, and, uh, you know, we're coming up, and you can see it down here uh, towards the, you know, where Edom is, but to the left. That's where it would be, and that's where he's going. And it says that 
he goes up to the south, and Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And if you go back up to chapter 12, verse 16, look, he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants. Listen, he had female donkeys. And we know from extra biblical sources that that's the way the rich were transported by female donkeys and they had camels. Those were prestigious symbols. Those were like the Lamborghinis of the day. What's another big time car? Okay, there were the Maseratis of the day. I mean, if you had camels, you had Lamborghinis and Maseratis, and you stuck them out in your front driveway so everybody could see and be impressed. That's what this was all about. Now, I don't know that Abram was doing that, but he received this stuff down there from Egypt. This is how rich he was, I'm trying to point out. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel. Now here, do me a favor and... uh Turn with me. You can see Bethel up there. Turn with me back over uh, to um, chapter 12. And in verse 6, it says, when Abraham first got to the land of Canaan, it doesn't say that. I'm putting that in there. When he passed through the land, he went to Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give you the, or give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. Folks, he lives a life of distrust and goes into Egypt. And when he recognizes it, he says, oh man, I've lost that trusting faith. What do I do? He goes back to the land of the promise and he goes back to the house of God. That's what Bethel means. He goes back to the place, listen, where he was trusting before. Amen? Also note, he always is intense. We talked about that last week. Abraham was intense in a tent because he probably was intense too, but, but he was intense because He was looking towards the heavenly city, he says, or it says about him. He cared. He lived light. He didn't live heavy. Although it says he was heavy, he still lived light. He didn't go build this massive mansion because he was traveling for God. He was living in the land of promise. People of faith live in the land of promises. They're around the house of God. Now, you get into community. Wherever you're being taught the Bible, you have life and fellowship and you can serve. If the Lord tells you to go, do it and be in those places and be a blessing to others at the house of God. That's where he went. He went back to the house of God. He went back to Bethel. And remember... There was a place that was beside Bethel. We recognize that from chapter 12. It was called Ai. That was really famous in the book of Joshua because that was the second city that Joshua attacked and it was called a little heap, a little mound of dirt. It was a nothing place. And he had just won at Jericho, Joshua did, but he didn't ask the Lord if he should attack Ai and he got bloodied and beat. That's Ai and it means heap. So listen, he goes to the house of God And that's where he's looking for. But look, he's rejecting the 
dirt of the world, the, the, the nothing place, the heap, the mound of dirt. And that's what we do. We step out of the world and we move on into the house of God. We're things of eternity. We're not things of materialism, of the world. That's not what we're to be. Do you have to have money to pay your rent? Yes, of course. Do you need... Right. No one's saying that. But see, when you keep one foot in Ai and one foot in Bethel, it just never works out. It just never works out. And here... Abram knows it, and he gets back there. And so he goes back to the place where he was really, really communing with the Lord. He goes back to Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. Because remember, back in chapter 12, he had set up an altar to the Lord. And it says it twice in verse 7. He built an altar to the Lord, it appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, pitched his tent. And uh, there he built an altar to the Lord. And what does that speak of? That speaks of worship. You understand? He got too heavily heavily involved in chapter 12 about what could possibly harm his family. Oh, no, a famine's coming. Here's what I'll do. I know down there it's fertile, down there in Egypt, let's move down there. See, things aren't always what they seem. We don't live by the things that we see. We live by the things that we don't see. And the thing that we don't necessarily see right now, we can't see him, Jesus, but we know he's seated seated at the right hand of the Father and he's alive. He's not dead. And there he is. And we live by him. And they, or he lives in the land of promise, he moves back to the house of God, and he makes sure that he and his family are worshipers. Everywhere he goes, he establishes an altar, sacrifices for that time. Knowing what God has done, celebrating that, looking forward to the Messiah. We'll see that next chapter. And he celebrates and he worships and he does it. He makes sure he's not preoccupied with the world, but he's preoccupied with what God has for him. And he worships, and he makes sure that's the fabric of his life. You get it? He makes sure that his family's with him, and they're worshiping and sacrificing and loving and doing the things of eternity. Amen? Standing in the promises of God. We're looking at what people are like when they're distrusting and what people are like when they're trusting. And so here, he does that. He sets up an altar. He always does that. He gets to people. Uh, he, 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 everywhere he goes, he sets up an altar. And I, I want you to remember something that's really interesting. Everybody heard of the church of Ephesus? Yeah, sure you have. We'll turn back to Revelation chapter 2. When Jesus is talking, and we're, uh, we're, they're being instructed a letter to the seven churches, and one of the churches is Ephesus. And in Revelation chapter 2, he says something very interesting. He says this, to the angel, verse 1, of the church 
of Ephesus right? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, one of the things, one of the ways in which you can read these letters to these seven churches, one of the ways, if you want to hear all the ways, get the tape. But one of the ways is many people believe this is what the different churches are like in the church age. And we're currently in the church age. So here's a warning. He says, I know your works. Oh my goodness, you're doing great works. You're laboring. You're being patient. And you're looking out for those who are evil and you're staying away from wickedness. And that's wonderful. And you've tested those who say they're apostles and are not. And you got your doctrine right and that's great. You found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Fantastic, he's saying. But watch out, church. For this, nevertheless, I have this against you, the Lord says, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And what does he say to do? Repent and do the first works or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. So the Lord's telling the church, Remember your first love. (laughs) What's your first love? You know, some of us could raise our hand. We could say stuff like, I don't know. My first love is my job, if I'm being honest. Some of us could say that. Some of us could raise our hand and say, our first love is our relationships within the world. Some of us could say, well, I certainly love to travel and go around the world and do fun things and stay at resorts and eat at nice places, and we could raise our hand there. Or we could say power or prestige or money. Couldn't we? But when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, do you know one of the things you're saying? I'm going to give my entire life back to you. My entire life. And what I'm saying is I'm going to lay down my self-life and I want to live my life for you and have you live through me. And I want to be at your service, Lord. Whatever you say, whenever you say it, wherever you say it, that's for me. That's what we say. We're giving our whole lives back. Romans 12 says that's our reasonable service. That's what we would do when we recognize everything that Jesus has done for us. Our reasonable service is to give our entire life back. Our finances, our recreation, our work, our relationships, they're all yours, Lord. Because Jesus wants to make it simple. There's these two ladies, you know, Mary and Martha, and one's a busybody worker, B, type A, da-da-da-da. Mary's a sloth, you know, not doing any work, just sitting there enjoying Jesus. I mean, that's what she thinks, right? And Jesus says, ooh, she's doing the best thing. She's doing the best thing. She's falling in love with me. She's treasuring me in her heart. And here's why Jesus says this, I think. It's not necessarily like an ego trip, like you love me. I think he knows that it's the safest (laughs) and greatest place to be. It's the healthiest spiritually, 
emotionally, everything, the healthiest place to be is under the, at the feet of Jesus, receiving from him and communing with him and talking with him and walking with him. And, you know, you're checking your watch. Lord, I mean, can you imagine? Lord, you got to cut this short. i got things to do. I mean, i got two emails to send at 9 o'clock. Can you quit? That's what we're like. But Jesus says, don't forget your first love. And I would ask you, and I'd ask myself first, because I'm busy, man. Is that my first thought? Is that my first inclination to be with the Lord? I want us all to get back to the place where we don't neglect our first love, our first thing, is that to be with Jesus and to receive from him and to worship him, to lay at his feet or sit at his feet and receive all that he has for us. So what is it or where is it that you were at that point? You know, some of us have been Christians for a while. And, you know, you were doing your morning devotions and, you know, out on the back porch and singing and the neighbors were looking at you like you were nuts, but you didn't care because you were just receiving so much and writing it all down and you were stunned and in awe of the word and you, and, and the Lord was bringing people into your life and man, it was cooking. I mean, you were sharing the gospel and loving on people and serving and doing all kinds of things and it was beautiful. It was tiring in a good way, but not, you didn't grow weary. You were tired, but not weary. You were serving the Lord. And, and that was 20 years ago or 10 years ago or two years ago before COVID or whatever. And I think what the Lord's telling us here is go back to that life. What is it that you've gotten away from? It's not him that has drifted from you. You've drifted from him, if that makes sense. Did I say that right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> he hasn't drifted. We've drifted. Go back to your first love. What was your life like when it was simpler? Where I was number one, he said. That's the uh, safest and healthiest place to be. And you see that here. That's what a person of faith does. He keeps the Lord first. And he calls on the name of the Lord. He calls on the name of the Lord. You know this. Remember, Seth and his son verse 4 here, Seth and his son in 426 pre-flood called on the name of the Lord. Abram before in 12 chapter 8 called on the name of the Lord, but then stopped calling on the name of the Lord, had some trouble in Egypt, and now he's back to it again. I mean, you're calling on the name of the Lord. You're sacrificing your worship. You're receiving spiritual vitality from Jesus himself, not from a paradigm. No Susie Orman stuff. No Tony Robbins stuff. It's not some paradigm. If I do this, if I do that, then I'll feel good. Seven keys to happy living. That's crud. How about just go meet with the living Lord in the mornings and spend time with him in the, at lunchtime in the afternoons. And then before you go to sleep, praise the Lord and sing to the Lord and have a vital, dynamic relationship with the living, not dead, Lord. That's what he's calling us to. And that's what Abram was getting back to. And it's clear to us in the compare and contrast that Abram was repenting. He recognized his lack of trust and faith that led him into Egypt. And instead of making it worse by arguing with the Lord or saying, no, I wasn't really not trusting. No, he goes back to his first love, the place 
where he walked with the Lord, talked with the Lord, and he sacrificed and he called upon the name of the Lord. Let's do that. What is your devotional life like? What is my devotional life like? What is your prayer life like? People who aren't praying, Leonard Ravenhill says, are only playing. And the killer of praying right now is somewhere in your pocket. It's a phone. Do whatever. I mean, I, I've seen those things where you can lock your phones in that thing for, and it won't let it out for like four hours or whatever you set it to. Do whatever you have to do to be alone with the Lord. Walk with him. Talk with him. Go take a walk and bring your Bible or whatever. Lot also, who went with Abram, that's in verse 5, had flocks and herds and tents. <laughs> That's because he was tagging along, man, with Abram. And he got rich too. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together for their possessions were so great that they couldn't dwell together. If you ever been in the south of Israel, although it was more lush then, you'd know now hardly anyone can exist out there with flocks and livestock, right? Not a lot of things to eat, but... They went up farther to Bethel and Ai, and that's farther up in Israel, but it's still, it's hill country. That's up in the hills. Ephraim, the area of Ephraim. So they were so great that they couldn't exist together, and there was strife between the herdsmen and Abraham's or Abram's livestock. And this is another lesson. You think your life's going to be solved when you have money, when you have possessions, when you have a lot of stuff. Here it caused strife between family members. Now listen, I used to, when I first practiced law, I had to do everything, and I hated it, just to be honest with you. But one of the things I had to do was estate stuff. Ugh. I don't like that at all. You know why I don't like that at all? Everybody's fighting over the money, over the stuff. Everybody thinks, oh, it's going to help us. It's instant almost. People fight about money. And here you see that Lot gets all these possessions. They go down there. And maybe there isn't uh, tension now between Lot and Abraham so much, but the herdsmen are at each other's throat. The ones of Abraham's uh, livestock and the herdsmen of uh, Lot's livestock. And I want you to see something. This is really interesting that the Lord put this in here. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. And so what was happening here is that the herdsmen would at each other's throats. And what does the Bible tell us about the people of God in Psalm 133? It's so wonderful. It's so pleasant. It's so great when brothers dwell in unity. And the Bible tells us that the Israelites, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Acts 13, Luke 2, the Israelites were to be, listen, light to the Gentiles. And here you go. You got some people coming up out of the Negev. They're coming up to the areas of Canaan. And you've got non-people of God watching the people of God fight. <laughs> oh, what they must think. 
Why would I want anything to do with any of that? Look at these people. They can't even get along and they're rich. That's what they were saying. And that's, why I think, why they put it in here. And we know that <laughs> strife is compared to water that seeps out in Proverbs 17, 14. Now listen, my basement just flooded. It ain't no fun, man. When the water gets in your basement, I just had to pay somebody to put in the French drain and all that sort of thing. I mean, it's no fun. And in Proverbs 17, 14, it says that that's what strife is like. It gets in and it just destroys. You can't see it sometimes, but it destroys. And here... The Lord puts it in here, quit fighting in front of the people who don't know me. Anytime you see in the Bible, the people of God keeping people who aren't of God from God, he is not a happy camper. And so I think to myself, what am I doing in my life that would prohibit or disturb or um, yeah, uh, not aid in helping somebody know God? And if I find that, I want to get rid of it. You guys will be telling me after the service. <laughs> but anyway, so Abraham says to Lot, look at this. Please, circle please. Now listen, what does Lot know? What does Lot's herdsman know? The herdsman know my boss owns all the promises of God, including we're going to have this whole land. So they look over at Lot's people and say, you people are toast because we're going to get the land. Abram owns the promises. What else do they know in a culture of this time? The elder is always treated with utmost respect. So when the strife is coming and Abram calls the meeting with Lot, the herdsmen must be saying to themselves, ah, we're going to get you guys. And the other guys are like, oh, you're going to get the best stuff. We're going to get ripped off here. That's what they're saying. They know it. The promises and the elder. And so they come and you, the first thing out of Abram's mouth is not, you owe me. You're a snot-nosed little kid who doesn't know and shouldn't even be here. And you, you rode my coattails down in Egypt to gain wealth. And I'm going to take what I'm going to take. Because the promises to me, and you're younger than I am. And I got to tell you, folks, Christian or non-Christian, most of the time, that's the way this would go down. Most of the time, including in business right now. And yet, can you hardly believe it? Can you hardly believe it? Abram says, please. I mean, just that little word. He's being respectful. He's being, uh, he's being deferential. He's being generous. Look with me over to the second chapter of Philippians in the New Testament. Look at me over, or look with me over the second chapter of Philippians, and I want you to see something. I want you to picture yourself being the boss. You're the boss. You own your company. Maybe some of you in here do. But you're the boss, and you're the elder statesman, and you have a snot-nosed little kid trying to tell you what to do.
and he's a person of God and you're a person of God. And all you have to do is play the trump card. Uh, not that trump card, but a trump card. And it's over. And then you read this. Let nothing be done, verse 3 of chapter 2. Nothing. Nothing in business, nothing in life, nothing in family, nothing in work, nothing in extracurricular, nothing in finances, nothing. Nothing. That's what that word means, nothing. Let nothing be done, nothing, through selfish ambition or conceit. Because it's me, man. That's what that means. It's me. You don't know who you're messing with. I have rights here. I own the company. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but watch this. But in lowliness of mind, do this. Let each esteem others better than himself. Ooh, ouch, wow. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest or his own interest or her own interest, but also for the interest of others. Abram is prefiguring the mind of Christ. He's showing forth the mind of Christ right here. And how in the world can we do that on this side of the cross? Abraham did it on that side of the cross. Here's why. Because if there's any consolation in Christ, because you're in Christ and he's in you. That's what the Bible says. So he goes and he goes, hey, you snot-nosed little kid, don't you tell me what to do. I'm the boss. He doesn't say that. He goes, hey, hey, uh, Hey, Lot, please. He's generous. He's kind. He's smart. He's wise. He doesn't let this situation linger. He deals with it. You understand? But he deals with it both in truth and in love. There's a lot of people who will deal with it in truth. I'm the boss. You're not. Out of here. There's a lot of people who deal with it just in love. Oh, you could have whatever you want. Just don't have any conflict with me. Here he just is a a kind guy. I'm going to take some, you're going to take some. But please, just separate from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. You, you You know what Abraham knew right here? You know what Abraham knew right here? If I gave this land away 65,000 times, it's going to be mine. You get it? He's got a promise from God. (laughs) It's sure. If I gave it to him or her or them or whatever, however that happens, the Lord's going to give it to me. So I'm going to nip strife in the bud here. I'm going to ask him, please. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to think of others before myself. That's faith, folks. A faithful life defers to others. Are you catching that? Now, in this climate... I'm going to get people who are going to be mad at me today. I look at the climate on social media, and I don't see much of that from Christians. What I see is, these are my rights, da-da-da-da. Now, should we stand for righteousness? Of course, of course. But there's a way in which to do it. And here, he says, please. It's startling. If you take the left, I'll go right. And Lot, this is what an unfaithful person does, because they fix their eyes on what is seen. He looks up and he sees all the plain of Jordan and it's well watered everywhere. And he's like, oh, I'm going to get one over on uncle. I look down there 
I see the plain. I'm going to take the best stuff, the stuff where I can grow, the stuff where I can make the most money. I'm going to take that. And Abram lets him. He lifts up his eyes. People that aren't of faith live by sight, not by faith. Sees all the plain of Jordan, well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he moves towards Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where he goes to. By the way, just so you know, in the caves of Qumran in 1947, they found a lot of transcripts, biblical transcripts, and you know that. If you go to Israel and you go to the Jerusalem Museum, you can actually see those transcripts of the book of Isaiah. It's amazing. But they also found some extra biblical stuff that's not included in the canon. And one of the things they found was where they went to look over this. And it was a little bit above Bethel, about five miles. According to this extra biblical document, it's the highest point in the Central Valley. So he could see, they could see forever in all directions. Isn't that interesting? And so they do it. And he says, I'm going to go down there by Sodom and Gomorrah. I know it's uh, you know, we know its reputation, but we're going to go down there. It's like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zor. Then Lot chose for himself. Did you catch that? When you read the Philippians 2 passage, you don't hear that. Choosing for myself, you defer to others. But if a person of faith chooses for themselves, they don't think of the Lord. They don't think of others. All the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east. Now, you know this, right? Cain went to the east. Every time it says in the book of Genesis that the person went to the east, it's talking that they went farther away from the Lord. When you live your life by sight and not by faith, you're moving to the east. That's what this is saying. And they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So this is interesting. Here's what people of, uh, not of faith do. Look, they see with their eyes material. They understand, oh, okay, there might be some wickedness over there maybe, but I'm moving there because that's the place I can prosper and do well. And the next thing you know, they're living by the world we find out in Genesis 19 that he actually becomes, Lot does, a bigwig who sits in the gates of Sodom and Gomorrah, which means he started to participate in the business and the political activity and became a big shot in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we all know what happened at that place. So he pinched his tent even as far as Sodom, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now, I know, I got to go, but... I want you to see something, folks. Do you know in the New Testament, do you know in the New Testament, this is astounding to me. It says in 2 Peter 2.7 that Lot was a righteous man. And what's very interesting about Lot which is very interesting about churchgoers, is that we can say prayers of repentance and stand in righteous relationship with God 
and then still love the things of the world greater than we love eternal things. In fact, uh, <laughs> one commentator here said, Lot likes heaven more than he likes hell. But he likes the things of the world more than he loves heaven. Did you catch that? And boy, does that describe the American church many times. We want to be out of hell, love heaven more than hell, but we love the world more than we love heaven. <laughs> or the, you, you get it, right? The things of eternity. Wow, that's powerful. And here we sort of see that, those sorts of things. He's a righteous man. He's in right standing with God, and yet he gets off track. And the next thing he knows, he's living and operating in Sodom. And many people, listen, many people in the Christian life choose where they're going to go, where they're going to move, what they're going to do with their children and their occupation based on what they see. And they never evaluate what's going to be best for my family Where can I go and grow and serve and love and have my folks in a place where I can teach them? More what we do is I'm going to go and live like, you know what, fast and furious and make all this money and take all these trips. And if I get to see you sometimes and speak some wisdom into your life, great. But if not, I'll be over here making the money because I'm supporting you. And the next thing we know, we're sitting in the gates of Sodom. And so I would encourage us, even in our planning and where we move our family and what we do, let's not just be people who've said a prayer on the back of a magazine, but people who live in faith and trust, including where and what we do with our family and how we train them up. And the Lord, look at this, verse 14, said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are. Isn't this amazing about the Lord? (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but I'm competitive. I read this and I go, oh my gosh, he gave up the greatest part. And then look how beautiful and wonderful the Lord is. He comes and puts his arm. After he's done this, look, he comes and puts his arm around Abram and he says, lift your eyes up. It's the same phrase in which Lot took in an inappropriate way. God gave it back to him in an appropriate way. You see it? And said, basically, God wasn't a smart aleck like me, but he basically said, don't worry about that. You did the right thing. Here's why. You did the right thing. I take you up. I want you to look. I want you to see out there. I want you to look out there and look from the place where you are right now, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants. And by the way, in the Hebrew, that word is seed, singular, which is fascinating to me because he was looking forward to the seed of the woman. But anyway, that's for another day. Anyway, I'll give to you and your descendants forever. That's how long he gives gives it to them. That has implication in your news right now. And I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Over in 15.5, he says, I'll make your descendants as the stars in the sky. 
Listen to this. So everywhere Abram walked, dust, stars, he was reminded of the promise. Isn't that incredible? That's amazing. And so how loving is the Lord? He takes him and said, you did the right thing. I know it was hard. This snot-nosed kid, I know it. But I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth. In other words, the promise still stands. The promise is dependent upon me, not me. The Lord is saying me. And it's forever. And it's unilateral. I'll do it. Then your descendants also could be numbered. And he says this, Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. And we know from early Jewish commentaries that this is a symbolic act signifying legal acquisition of the land. He went and examined his land. It's like the walkthrough when you buy real estate. That's what he was doing here. The Lord told him, go, walk through the land, it's yours. Then Abram moved his tent, and he went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre. Now, you've got to know Hebrew here. I don't know Hebrew. I just look it up on Blue Litter Bible. And the idea of Mamre is strength or bigness or fatness. Fat. That's a good thing. Because he is living in the fatness, which are in Hebron, and that word means communion, and build an altar there to the Lord. In other words, Abram moved his tent, watch, where he could always be in strong communion with the Lord. That's what people of faith do. They orchestrate their lives, whether it's out in... Eastern European country or down in Africa or New Zealand or Indonesia, wherever, they build their lives so that they can live it for God, so that they can be people of faith and not materialism or of the world. You understand? And I want you to know something. When you read of Lot, how many times do you read of Lot ever building an altar? Never. He lost his devotions and devotion and worship of the Lord, but Abram didn't. And he sets himself up, ultimately, where there can be strong communion with the Lord. This is the third altar built. We've been encountered Abram for two or three chapters here, and in that small little time, We see everywhere he goes, in tents, he builds an altar for worship and sacrifice, and he situates himself and his family self, or the family, where there can be promotion of devotion to his living God. And the last thing I want you to see is, and we'll close, go back to the first verse of chapter 13. And it says, you know, you you remember, it was heavy, and he went on his journey, or excuse me, Abraham was very rich, verse 2, and he went on his journey to the place as far as Bethel, to the place where he'd been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, 
and he built an altar there. And then when we get back to 18, he built an altar there. Remember what an altar speaks of? It speaks of worship. Here's what I think the message is. Even when you get in disagreements with people, that can be worship. It's an opportunity to show the love of Christ when people are infringing upon your rights. You have the opportunity to trust the Lord or trust the situation. And the Lord frames it with worship and worship in this chapter and everything in between. The way in which you live your life in conflict with other people is worship. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come here uh, this afternoon and we thank you for these words. It's amazing that this was written all this time ago and yet is so applicable. And we know it's because your word is alive and active and it doesn't return void and it cuts us and does surgery on us in the right way, in a healthy way. And we're thankful for that. And we pray that you would knit these things to our being. And we pray by your spirit that as we go out today, this afternoon, and moving forward, that you'd help us to live in faith, in the promises of God, in in communion with you. And when we encounter people who are infringing upon our rights, Lord, help us to defer and love and put others' interests above our own. Woo, we really need help there, at least I do. And Lord, may you then be glorified in these last days. And may many come into your kingdom before you come back, even through this little body of believers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.